0: You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. There's something, something really cool about moms, right? Um, they, they anchor us, don't they? In a lot of ways, they anchor us. And, and you may have come from a family where you say, you know, my mom didn't really anchor but there are moms that do. And, and we recognize that there are variations within families of what moms do and what they don't do. And so, not kind of slamming moms that didn't and, and just elevating moms that did, we just recognize that, that God has placed moms in their lives for a purpose. And, Here's our pastor, <laughs> There you go. I love that about technology. So, so here's here's the other. The writer of Hebrews writes something, and it's just it's general. It's not really about moms per se. It's it's just about anchors. And this is what he says, and it's in it's in chapter six. It starts about halfway through verse 18. It says, "We who have taken refuge." would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And so there's this idea of something to grab hold of that's an anchor. It says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. And that word enter really means to come and go, is to have access to. So he says that, and then he says, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so it's this idea that there is something that we can hold on to that anchors us. And for, in some respects, moms, particularly because of their role in the family, have the privilege of teaching us who to anchor to. And some of you have moms that that just spoke to your life and spoke godly things into your life. And you can turn around on, on Mother's Day and say, I am so thankful that God put my mom in my family for me. And there are others that it, it just is different than that. And we recognize that. And so, so that, that being said... Let, I, want to, I want to show you a picture in just a, just a second. So just hold that thought for just a second. I want to ask you the question, where does encouragement to seek hope through Christ come from? And some of us would say our moms or, or maybe it was um, somebody else in our life that, that spoke to us. And kind of had that role. Maybe it wasn't a mom, maybe it was your mom's friend or a, a female leader in a student ministry or a Sunday school teacher in in children's ministry. The influence of a mom in the life of her children, whether biological or by the role in association with, with that person, can encourage us to have trust in God. I'm thankful for moms. I think moms are special. I'm going to f- hold this hold that thought for just a moment. We'll see if that we'll see if that'll hold. I don't know. My ears weak this morning, so it's not staying. So so there is something about moms, right? Mom, we we consider moms are special. And, and you know this probably because I've mentioned in the past that, that my mom passed away in 2010, October 2010. Um, I had the privilege of conducting her funeral service. And it was different because my mom was Catholic, which meant I walked into a Catholic church, talked with the priest, and, and we had this arrangement where I would get up and I'd speak for a little while, and then I would just kind of turn it over to him and he did the Catholic thing. And, and so I grew up Catholic, so I sort of understood that. And I remember sitting in the second row of that church and with, with Deb and, and uh, my kids and my dad and, and, and sitting there and, and trying to figure out what to do. It had been a long time since I've been there. And so there was this, this thing that was happening behind me during the Catholic part of that where the, the group would stand up, then they'd sit down, then they'd kneel, then they'd stand up, and then they'd sit down, then they'd kneel, and then they'd kneel some more and stand up. And so it got to one point in the service where they went, what are we supposed to do? And I said, I don't know, it's our mom. Do what we want to do. You know, if we want to sit, stand, if you want to peek over your shoulder, that's okay. But I got to share about my mom in that service. Um, I, I shared with, uh, about some of the things that were worthy of emulating about her life. And then there were some other things that I shared that made her very real. Go ahead and go ahead and throw up that picture. This is a picture that that I've got of, of my mom from when she was a little bit younger, and um and my my son saw this uh, on his last visit. I showed it to him and he said, "Your mom was hot." <laughs> and I wasn't exactly sure how to respond to that. I thought, like, "That's odd, but okay, you know." And, and I got what he was saying. Um, so. But, but I shared about her life because there were some things that she did. She had one of her legs amputated as part of a, a series of um, misfortunate things that happened to her. And and so after she went through some healing, she actually went to the hospital and started talking to people who had the same issue, had part of their leg amputated or one of their legs amputated. And she came alongside them and just encouraged them. It wasn't that she could get around any better. And then then there were other... The other things that I shared about her, like the time she served cold English peas. I mean, she brought them to the table said, yeah, go ahead, start start eating and all that kind of stuff. And she forgot to turn on the stove. But, but you know, canned peas look the same whether they're warm or cold. It, they just taste a little different. And so I, I shared about that. And so she wasn't perfect. She was that mom that would come to all the baseball games and she would have one eye on the field and what was going on on the field with me and my dad coach some. And one eye on my brother who never watched a baseball game and was over in the mud. just getting his, He was dirtier than I was and I was playing the game. And so we'd get home and so she would have her eyes in both places. But there was something about an imperfect mom and the heart that she had for others that, that was just worth looking at again and imitating. What we're going to look at today in Paul's letter to Titus is is this idea of what a what a woman is supposed to do. What a lady is supposed to do. And you remember Paul is writing to the church at Crete. And he's writing this letter to this pastor. And as he's I'm excuse me. I've got to work on this. That or I'm just going to get louder and softer all morning and I'll just keep bending until it breaks. Uh, we'll see if that makes it. So, so Paul writes this letter to Titus and it's about 30 years after the resurrection. And he's sharing with Titus uh, about the organization of the church. And so he writes some things about organization, but, but probably more so he's writing about the church as an organism, a, a living thing. And so as he's writing about leaders, and, and that's a little bit earlier in the letter, and we'll get to that next week, as he's writing about that, and he starts talking about men in the church, the, the older men and the younger men, and then he talks about the older women and the younger women. He's really talking about subgroups within the life of this church and saying, here's some things that you need to know as you lead. And here's some things that you need to share. These are the characteristics that ought to be there and that they need to kind of ascribe to if they're going to, if they're going to portray Christ well. And so Paul writes that. And then we have to understand also the context of this whole passage. And why Paul is writing that. And and that's found in Titus 1, it's in 15, and verses 15 and 16. Now listen to this. He says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Essentially, they they said that everything is wrong. And so, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They, and this is, a, this is a key verse for this because it'll tell you why Paul is writing this. It says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Now, that, that's pretty harsh, don't you think? They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. And, and that would be a true statement. We would not have a problem with that statement. Because that, that, and really that's the cry of those that are unbelievers, isn't it? I look at the church and I see the church not acting like I think the church ought to act. Therefore, I have an excuse for not believing in God at all. I can, I can use this excuse that they don't act like they should. And so they profess to know God. But by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And Paul's saying the same thing. There are people that are calling themselves by God's name, but are not. There's nothing about their life that is characterized by the character of Christ. And that's a problem. If the the organization and the organism of the church is going to thrive... People that call themselves Christians or people that profess to know Christ need to live like that. There's no, there should be no disconnect between the profession of faith and the, and the change and the acting out of faith. They are connected. You can't walk in here and say, I want fire insurance and that be the end of it. That's not what Christ called us to. He actually called us to follow him, to take up our cross and follow him. And when we decide that, that behavior has nothing to do with professing Christ, we've separated something that God does not separate. So as we understand the context of what Paul is saying here, that that idea of their deeds they deny him the, that greek word really means they're not acting like they should or they're not acting as i would expect you've been around people and you may go through certain things and you'll say they're not themselves today have you ever said that you may have said it about your spouse you may have said it about a mom or a dad or a coworker, or somebody, they're just not acting right. There's something wrong. I don't know what it is, but they're just not themselves. And that's the idea here. It's, it's this uncharacteristic behavior. And Paul is saying it ought to be different. It's, a, it's actually a discredit to the name of Christ and the work of Christ. And so we're used to accountability, right? You have accountability in your life, don't you? mortgage, maybe car payment, possibly. If you're married, there's accountability with your spouse to some extent. Like, like I don't, there, there there's some things that I can do and I don't check with Deb. You may say, well, that's a mistake. (laughs) There, there are things that are, that are okay. Like, like I, I cooked breakfast this morning. And I'm not bragging because I cooked breakfast. I just cooked breakfast, but I did not tell her I was using up all the bacon. So if we were planning on having bacon later in the day, it's gone. So, but I didn't check with her. I don't have to check on that. But I did tell her, I was going out the other day for a few hours. And and I said, any problem with that? Is that okay? She'd go. You know, she wasn't chasing me out. But, but she's like, yeah, go, go ahead, it's, it's fine. And so there are, there are some things in, in accountability uh, homework, chores. Some students and, and kids have chores, some adults have chores, speed limit signs, maybe another one, alarm clocks. My daughter was here till this morning. And she said she said she sent her alarm and if she ever listens to this, I'll be in trouble. But she set her alarm for 5 30 with the idea that she was gonna get up and leave by seven. And at six thirty she was still in bed. And and she got up and came out and she's like, I'm tired. And it's like, why are you tired? Well, I was gonna get up at five thirty, but I decided not to. And I just need to be on the road by about 7.15. And she said, but it probably wouldn't have been as bad as except I kept hitting the snooze button. So she hit the snooze button for an hour, which meant every nine minutes something was reminding her that she was supposed to get out of bed. And so alarm clocks become accountability for us. And Paul's admonition to Titus is there there are some anchors and some teaching that takes place that become accountability for us. How are we acting according to the word of God? And so Titus 2.1, Paul makes this statement, but as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So what Paul's telling him is, hey, I realize that there are some that profess to know Christ but aren't acting it, But here's what you need to do as a leader. You need to put it out there that this is what should be happening within the organism of the church. This is how it should be arranged, but this is how it ought to behave. And so Paul writes these things to to young Titus. See, obedience to the word of God is evidence of a relationship with God. Obedience is evidence. And we look for evidence of things. I've got... Grass in my yard. Now I had hay because we had we had the, the new house and it was just dirt and we had hay and somebody put some seed down that didn't work. We put some more seed down. There's evidence of growth now because there's a green tent to my yard. It's not grass, well it is grass, but it's it's just the green tint of grass. So there's evidence, some evidence. And I would say there has to be evidence of your life in Christ. If we're really gonna profess him, there must be evidence. When we lived in Florida, when we first moved to central Florida, we had an orange tree in the backyard. It was great. I could walk out there, pick an orange, go in, squeeze it, hand it to them and say, here's your freshly squeezed orange juice. And then we moved out to an old orange grove and there was no orange tree. So that disappeared. But I knew that was an orange tree in that yard. Why? because there were oranges. I knew it wasn't a lemon tree or some other tree. That It was an orange tree. I, I got to play golf with a couple guys from Canada the other day. And you know how I could tell they were from Canada? A, hey, at the end of every sentence, A. Hey. So yeah, nice shot, A. Hey, you know? And so you get that, you knew it. There was evidence. And there has to be evidence in our life and so if we're looking for the evidence of the relationship with Christ and we want it to be a living grace, that's the whole idea of this, of this series as we look at the book of Titus, this letter, we're looking for evidence of living grace. And so Paul, in starting at verse 3, is going to give us some things and it's particularly directed toward women. However, guys, this is not your time to go to sleep. I don't care really how late you stayed up last night. Honestly, it's not your time to go to sleep because everything that's going to get mentioned can be applied to you, all right? So if you have a a husband or a spouse or a friend that's sitting next to you that's a guy, just elbow him right now. Just go ahead and get it out of the way. That's good. Some of you are doing it. Some of you are a little scared to do it, but, but it's good. Some of this stuff will apply to guys as well. So Paul writes this in verse 3, going through verse 5. And if we look at verse 2, we understand it says, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. And then he turns around and says, Older women likewise. And so there's a little piece of this verse 2 for older guys that gets applied to older ladies as well. And I am not, I'm wise enough not to qualify what is an older lady and a younger lady. Just saying. Because I have to go home with a lady and I'm not putting her in either category. I'd be be wise to put her in the younger one. I'll just stop there. So so Paul writes in, in Titus 2, 3, he says this. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent In their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. And then there's this phrase called that says, so that. And there's two of these so that phrases in this passage. It's just three verses, but there's two so that phrases. And we're going to get to that because so that phrases really just indicate that here are some things on the front end with the result of something else. For instance, if I, if I want to score well on the golf course, I hit straight so that I can par the, the, the hole. If I want my English peas cooked when they get to the dinner table, I have to turn on the burner. So I turn on the bar- burner so that the peas are hot when they get to the table. So the so that phrases help us to understand this is something that starts here with the result of this. And then Paul's going to add to it and say, so that something else takes place. So you can kind of tie it in a pyramid. You can tie it with a string. It doesn't really matter. All these things are connected with the final outcome found in verse five. And so there are two fundamental virtues of older women that Paul writes about. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. And then if you would, just put a parenthesis in this next section. Not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine. And then the second one, teaching what is good. So the the first blank there is devotion. Reverent in their behavior. They are to be devoted. To be doing the things that lead toward holiness. This word reverent means to be holy or becoming holy. And I want to ask this question, and it's because Paul puts this in terms of behavior, is holiness only inward? No. There's an outward component to holiness, isn't there? But if it's only outward, it becomes legalism, doesn't it? Like I I can live any way I want. I can have any attitude I want. And Jesus kind of addressed this when he talked about loving your brother or hating your brother and murder and all those kind of things. He kind of tied all that together. And really what it means is that we've got to consider the inside as much as the outside. If it's only the outside and not the inside, it becomes legalism. I can get all dressed up for church but be a wreck on the inside. To be unholy on the inside. Pretty sure that's what Jesus was talking about when he, when he talked about the Pharisees being whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, not so much on the inside. And so this outward component is set in place because of an inward component. We are to be set apart vessels. And Paul gives two examples, and this is not an exclusive list for older ladies, so don't read it like that. But he gives he gives examples of what it means to be um, reverent in their behavior. He says not malicious gossips, and the Greek word there is um, diabolos. It's the it's the word that means slanderers, but we recognize it as being something diabolical. It's the word that's translated other places as the devil. She so go, I have trouble holding my tongue. I'm a little bit of a gossip. Quit being like the devil. I didn't. I didn't write this in. You know what I mean? Paul seemed to put those in the same camp, and it's the idea of accusation with ill intent. And so Paul writes, there, he says, "Don't be malicious gossips. Don't act like Satan, an accuser." And then the second part is enslaved to much wine. Now, let me just go ahead and put this out there because I've heard several things said um, along the way with regards to drinking. I've had the conversation with my kids. I've had it in other places. And some people go, well, you're not supposed to drink at all. Well, it's okay if you drink a little. And I want to ask a couple of things. Where is the line? And is there a line? And is there a godly, is there a godly element to to drinking at all? And so when Paul writes this, he says, Don't be enslaved, don't be enslaved to much wine. This is not a referendum on drinking. So you can't go, well, Paul said, Don't drink much wine, it means I can drink a little wine. It's not what Paul's saying here. In fact, when we were in Florida, Deb was prescribed by a doctor to go ahead and drink some wine. And so as a Baptist minister, I'm like, oh, well, now what do we do? It's a prescription. (laughs) You know, I I don't go to the next county to get medicine. (laughs) So I really didn't want to go to the next county to get her medicine. And so we said, well, that doesn't fit. We're going to have to figure out something else. But he was prescribing that. But that's Paul, what he has in mind here is this whole idea of, being, uh, of not guarding the ability to, to check your spirituality and your physical health. In other words, what he's saying is women, older women, need to be on guard. And so if drinking, makes you off guard if it, means that, if it means that it dulls your senses in any form or fashion, you need to stay away from it. It does not keep you spiritually sharp to dull your physical senses. And so although it does not say don't drink at all, What I'm saying is, if you do, you are dulling the senses and probably your ability to hear God's voice leading you a particular direction. So if you were to ask me for advice, I'd say stay away from it. It's not good for your spiritual health, and it's not good for your witness. And you may disagree with me and we could go round and round on this, but I'm looking at this as a general principle of what Paul is saying in guarding your heart for the cause of Christ. Proverbs 4.23 says this, guard your heart above all else for it is the source of life. And so don't voluntarily be subject to something that affects your ability to hear and respond to God. Second thing in this is to be disciplined. To teach what is good. And and what that means in the Greek? Teach what is good. Isn't that profound? Just teach what is good. Teach what is right. So how do I know what's right? Look at Scripture. There's a long list of things that God said, "These these things are right. Those are the things that you pass on. Because there's a so that phrase coming right now. And so Paul lists These two things for older ladies with some parentheses about behaviors that are general statements about behaviors that we could probably cram 15 more things into. And then he says in the beginning of this next part, so that they, talking about younger women, may do something. And so for the church to thrive, older women must invest in younger women. They have to. It was a way for, for Titus to, and the church to guard the doctrine of the church and to, and to check the behavior of the church so that the witness of the church on Crete would be good, would be valuable, would be viable. And so there's a commissioning of older women in this verse. And then moving to verse four, there are seven anchors that benefit younger women. And we're going to run through these real quick. It's a so that. So the older women do this so that younger women will do this, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Now, there are landmines in the middle of this. I recognize that. You may recognize that and say, I don't like any of the landmines. Paul wrote this to Titus and it applies to us how we apply it how we apply it is significant for the work of the church going forward because if the work of the church is going to thrive this list cannot be left out i can't tear it out of scripture it has to apply and so the first thing is love for her husband And this is the, this Greek word from this comes from the the word phileo. It's not agape. It's not eros. Agape is that unconditional love. Eros is that, that sensual love where we get uh, the word erotic. But this is phileo. It's, it's the word where we get um, Philadelphia and, and brotherly love. It's, it's a friendship kind of love. And so that is supposed to be how a, a young woman is to love her husband she's actually supposed to treat him like a friend not a servant but she's supposed to treat him like a friend what would you want a fr- how would you want a friend treating you and so it's it's the the idea of in this particular case is not giving away any piece of your heart to anything else but being a friend to the one that God has called you to. And so we could put this in terms of of dating relationship for just a second. We'll talk to everybody that's not married. You can date, but if your dating is only so that you can have somebody on your arm, then stay away from it. There is no reason to give your heart to somebody you're not willing to marry. Start there. You have a big grin on your face. And there's, there's others that have big grins, so you're not, you're not the only one. you we're going, um, uh-oh. And, and we, we would tell our kids the same thing. Chase after God. First, chase God, and allow the other person to chase God, and God will bring you together. And and that's going to make some people uncomfortable because sometimes we desire to be with somebody that is not godly. And they're not chasing God, and they're for sure not going to lead you to chase God. And so if young women are going to love their husbands, they're going to have to be friends. They're in this together. The second piece of this is love for her children. And this essentially means to be attentive to the needs of your children, especially spiritual, spiritual needs. The third thing is to be sensible or to be content. When Paul writes this, he's he's wanting older women to teach younger women to curb their desires. Say, you need to be content where you're at. Don't be driven by personal wants. But chase after what God wants. The fourth thing is to be pure, and this comes from a root of holiness, to be single-minded in your focus. Colossians 3.2 is a good verse to remind us of that where Paul writes, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Number five, to be workers at home. Now let me ask a question, is Paul Wrong. For those of you that have careers outside the home and your mom, you say, but I have a career outside the home. And yet Paul says, be workers at home. Is Paul wrong here? And I would say, no, don't miss Paul's heart in what he shares with Titus. There is a role for a woman in in the home. Younger women are called for the important role of being a nurturing manager. And it doesn't mean that you don't you can't go to work someplace and still be a nurturing manager of the home, but you know as well as I do that women are much better at nurturing, at coming alongside. They don't do it what dads do. When a child falls, what's a dad say? Get up and brush it off. You're all right. Doesn't matter if it hurts. Get up. You want something else hurt? I'll hurt something else. So quit thinking about that. Just get up. But a mom will come beside and say, "Hey, are you okay?" Now, some moms will take the first tack for a little while, but if they keep crying, "Are you okay?" They're more nurturing, and so Paul is encouraging them to be workers or nurturing managers at home. The the sixth thing he he tells them to be kind, and that's the Greek word meaning kind. I don't know of another way to put that. Good-natured, pleasant, to be kind. And so older ladies teach younger ladies to be kind. The seventh thing is to be subject to their own husbands. And um, this is, this is um, dangerous ground, could be dangerous ground, because then we can get into all kinds of different things about what it means to be subject to. Um, but the, the Greek here means to be arranged under. And so in this, at the same time, Paul is writing to Titus to tell older women, to tell younger women to be arranged under their husbands. There is a responsibility of a husband to step up and be the spiritual leader of the home. So don't miss that part. The instruction was for guys has always been to be self-sacrificial. To love your wife as Christ loved the church. And and in that, it does not give the, the guys the license to carry a big stick. And so when Paul writes to Titus, have older women teach younger women to be subject to their husbands. At the same time, he's telling older guys to tell younger guys to follow Christ with passion. In this passage, there's also the idea of devoting. You know, the, the biblical principle in marriage is that a woman leaves her home and cleaves to her husband. And so when, when Paul writes, younger women be subject to your husbands, it is, it is different than... or Let me see if I can put this in, in the right terms. A woman comes under the headship of her husband within that family relationship, not under parents. There's an honoring that takes place with regards to parents and a friendship that is there. But when a husband and wife marry, they are leaving the, the biological family that they grew up in and are cleaving to one another. And so I could... I can get into meddling right here. If you're a parent that has a grown child and you're meddling in the the, um, marriage or the raising of grandchildren in an unhealthy way, stop. Just stop. You're there to be an encouragement to teach them how to help those children to grow up in Christ. You are not there to set the rules for them. And so and when we start talking about being arranged under, it's the idea of being dutifully subject to your husband. And this is not a plural husbands. And so when I, when I read that, it's not that every woman should be subject to every other man. It's that a wife, a younger woman should be subject and under the leadership of her husband. And then we come to the end of this. Subject to their own husbands, so that, in verse 5, so that. And it's so that one great goal will be accomplished, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. And that word dishonored means to blaspheme, to belittle, or bring to no effect in the life of a family, a child, a church. And so if older women act like they're supposed to, and they pass on to younger women how they should live, then the word of God is lifted up. It is exactly the picture that Isaiah showed up here when Dale and Clara and Emma Grace were up here in the front. It's where parents have invested in kids who now have kids and the church comes alongside and we're all there because we would love to see Emma Grace come to know Jesus Christ as her savior and to follow him with passion. That's the goal of that. And that's what Paul's writing. He said, if we want things to go right, if we want God's word to be honored, then we have to do these things so that our behavior does not belittle scripture or subvert God. See, right living and sound doctrine leading to a lifestyle honors God, a lifestyle honoring God. So Titus was leading the church to dismiss or, or to um, get, rid of, get rid of the disconnect between God's word and the actions of those who were professing Christ but weren't living it out. And so I want to ask this question. Do those outside this church see the beauty of God and the love of God through us? Paul highlights the privilege of those following Christ to pass on the other the benefits of that relationship. And it's a big responsibility. It's a big commissioning for older women to love younger women. It was a big responsibility for Titus to even share that. See, it wasn't Titus's role to share with the younger women. It was Titus's role to teach and then allow the older women who were following Christ with passion to teach the younger women how to do it. It's the idea of mentoring. So it's what we talk about when we talk about mentoring in church. Whether it's guys or or ladies, the mentoring still should take place. There's, There's going to be a chance coming in the next couple of months for those that say, hey, I don't have a clue how to mentor somebody that's younger to get some training in that. And you'll just hear more about it. I'll just mention it and we'll keep moving. But that's coming. And so the the question for this in in this section when Paul's writing this to Titus is this, how does, and and if this doesn't happen, how does a wife or a mother handle the difficulties of parenting, of loss, of, of disappointment, or frustration? Gotta have somebody to go to, right? How does a wife or a mother navigate when children seem to walk away from family or from God? How do they do that? Well, they'll pray, we'll go to God, but wouldn't it be great to have somebody who is chasing after God to come alongside and say, look, I just want you to know that that God is in control. And although you're hurting and you may not even be able to express it, God is present. There are women in this room of all ages that carry the wisdom needed for others to thrive in marriage, to thrive as parents, to thrive in their career or at home. There's plenty of wisdom in this room. God put together the church so that this could take place. He didn't say, hey, here's a church, and there's nobody of age that can be an older woman. But I'm going to write this anyways, just in case those that are younger survive and get to the place where they're older, then it'll, it'll apply. Now, there's plenty of ladies older, and, and you could start when you're 18 being older, maybe 17, 16, because there's always somebody younger that's watching you and, and that you could come alongside and to teach. There are others for someone, they're looking for someone to come alongside them and be a representative of living grace in their life. And so I'm going to ask a a couple of things this morning as we get ready for our invitation. I want to read a a story or a, a testimony. And I want to ask this question, how strong would the church be if the pattern that Paul writes to Titus about, if it were played out? Mentoring touched every aspect of my life. The opportunity to glean guidance from someone who was ahead of me in both life experience and her walk with the Lord was priceless. And then Courtney wrote this, that mentoring was one of the key spiritual milestones in my life. It gave me access to a godly woman that I can look for, look to for guidance and advice. It was so helpful to hear her perspective on each issue. Mentoring is important. It's important to the life of a church. JoLynn's story is a little bit longer. She says, what a beautiful day the Lord has blessed us with. I want you to know I believe that mentoring is a powerful tool and that God's work is the center of all growth. I truly believe it is all about Jesus. I've been saved since age 13, but many things have happened in my life to make me feel like I was not worthy of God's unconditional love and forgiveness. For a long time, I believed this is how life was going to be. I lived each day trying to please and make everyone happy. I figured as long as I tried really hard, I can make up for the things that had gone wrong for the first 35 years of my life. I, like many women, felt that there had been something more. There was an emptiness in my heart that no matter how hard I tried, I could never fill it. If only someone would have come up alongside of me and would have encouraged me to pray, read my Bible, surrender all, and trust completely in the Lord. A real friend, a friend that would love me with a true Christ-like love, as the Holy Spirit was preparing my heart, He was also preparing my mentor's heart. Now I have have someone who encourages me and brings me to God's word when I'm looking for answers. Someone who tells me what a friend I have in Jesus. A mentor does not have to have all the answers and is not perfect. But a person with a servant's heart who is sure of who they are because of their identity in Christ. And so she writes this in closing. I wish I could explain to you what mentoring has done for me. It has opened my eyes and my heart to things I had no idea about. For example, writing my testimony, asking God's Holy Spirit to fill me up every day, how to put on the whole armor of God, (laughs) how to resist the devil, and how if we lose sight of the Lord, it is so easy to fall away. I love the story about Peter in Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Says, I think this applies to our everyday walk with Jesus. How if we doubt our faith and don't keep our eyes on him, how we can start to sink. And through our faith, and through our faith when he calls us, when, he call out, when we call out to him. Excuse me, Jesus picks us up and brings us back safely. This is also a step in faith for me. If someone would have told me a year ago, I would be writing this to you. I would have never believed them. The love I feel for Jesus and everything He has done for me is why I want to mentor. I know that's a long testimony, but it shows the value in older women passing on to younger women the things of Christ. I would like to ask all our moms, and if you're not a mom, it's okay. I would like to ask you because there are some people uh, that surround you that are in your life that you could have that kind of influence that mentoring influence on so i would love to ask our ladies to come forward now come on come on up here The first thing that ought to be said is you are a wonderful-looking group of ladies. (laughs) God has placed in your lives those that you can pass the wisdom that you've gained. God has placed other people in your lives for you to pass on. In the life of the church, it's not really optional. And I want to encourage you to find someone to invest in. Teach them how to love Jesus well. Teach them how to chase him. And at the same time, keeping your passion for Christ up front. You keep chasing him. Because out of what is God has done on the inside of you, allowing that to ooze out to those that are younger will make all the difference in the future of a church, the church. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.